Welcome to The Destinationists, the show for the modern travel marketer. I'm Andres Lopez Varela. And I'm Lauren Quaintance. Coming up on this episode of the show, it's not often that a destination marketer will go all in with one particular type or format or style of content, but the team at Visit Seattle have done that with Visit Seattle TV, and they have doubled down on video in a way that no other destination marketer probably has. And we're really interested to understand the insight behind that and how that sustains itself because it's tricky is it expensive can it be done for all different audience groups we're going to find out more in trend monitor we're going to discuss some stereotypes about millennials and their travel habits and some new expedia research that kind of uh, unearths some new insights on the way that this uh, much talked about much maligned sometimes group actually does travel and finally in campaign news we're kind of throwing back to episode six with uh, dueling campaigns between Tourism Australia and Tourism New Zealand, their continuations and extensions of their, of their very successful Dundee and Get NZ on the Map campaigns, respectively. Does it work? Does the platform still appeal? And is it something they can build on with future momentum? All that is coming up on today's episode of The Destinationists, starting now. Now, we don't need to tell you that video is one of the most potent forms of content in the travel marketing space for so, so many reasons, but it's often just a campaign or it's a part of a larger play. Uh, Very unusual that a DMO would go all in with video as their primary content mechanic, but the team at Visit Seattle has done just that. They've really found a groove with Visit Seattle TV, basically a fully-fledged online television channel with deep, immersive, varied, genuine, very well-produced content about the destination and its surrounds, and they're crushing it. David Newman is the creative director at Visit Seattle and has had a leading hand in developing Visit Seattle TV for the DMO. He is our guest on the show today. David, thank you for joining us. Hey, yeah, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. So, David, uh, let's start, first of all, with your title, because it really caught our interest. A creative director at a destination marketing organization, that's not super common. Your role is quite unique. What t- maybe give us an idea of your background and how you ended up in this role at Visit Seattle. Sure. Uh, so, I've been a graphic designer for a long time, and as I just actually reached my 10-year mark at Visit Seattle, and uh, over the years, I've pushed my way in more and more to um, assert my own ideas as best I can and kind of help drive the creative vision for how we want to present ourselves globally. And so that's that's really what my job pretty much entails. Um, Like most DMOs, um, you know, it's it's a lean crew and uh, I wear a lot of hats. Um, My favorite is the uh, global branding perspective, though, for sure. And in the big play really is Visit Seattle TV, which is one of the big things we wanted to talk to you um, about today. I mean, with that, you've, you've kind of gone big on content, really, you know, big on um, on the idea that video content um, is is going to be the way to reach your audience. You know, what makes you so sure? You know, what, why were you so sure that this is the right approach? We first started down this road of social down in uh, 2012 when we launched a website called Two Days in Seattle. And what we were doing was bringing social influencers from around the country uh, to Seattle and setting them up with things to do and places to go and uh, some other suggestions. And then uh, asking that they post in their Twitter feeds uh, about 
what they were doing in Seattle and use the hashtag two days in Seattle. And then we took that, uh, we'd aggregate that, those postings and put them into an interactive map on two days in Seattle.com. And then people could go in and interact and see where people were going. Uh, and it was a really successful uh, program that got us to really cross over the line of it's, it's time for us to stop telling the story of Seattle, but to let others tell their story of Seattle. And we found that that's a much more powerful uh, way to describe Seattle to other people. And it's also one thing we really want to do is come across as very authentic. And for us to push advertisements that are like, here's what you should know about us is less, is a little more disingenuous than for someone who's a visitor and experiencing Seattle for themselves, um, letting them tell their friends what it is that they think is special about Seattle. Really, as time has gone on and we've seen video really become the primary mechanism for people to share uh, first-person experiences, um, that's really became the obvious way for us to go. Um, our engagement is through the roof. People love um, so much of our material. And really, throughout most of it, um, it's, there's very little content that we have where it's Seattle being shared from a Seattle perspective. It's really about people being delighted by what they've encountered when they visit. Mm. There's, I mean, that's something we hear quite a bit of, this sort of this move away from um, DMOs kind of, you know, imposing a particular view of a city and, and kind of really leading that conversation to, I guess, that, that move away to kind of freeing it up and allowing, um, you know, visitors to help them tell the story. And, and I guess it's it's quite liberating in a way. I mean, I guess some um, visit Seattle TV, you know, if you were to describe it, people, I mean, I feel like it's, it's almost like a fully-fledged te- television channel, isn't it? I mean, it's got a number of quite distinct episodic um series within it um and and they're 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 fantastic they're things like first takes which um follows travelers as they experience a city for the first time and then there's been there made that which is about the city's um makers um getting inspiration for their next project but what i'd I'd love to understand is is what how you kind of came to those particular content ideas and series ideas you know what was the the audience segmentation or insights um that kind of informed the choice of topics and also the personalities um that you've chosen to create those video series with so with first takes um that was our real first foray into a series a content series. Then we had to find distribution mechanisms to get it out in the world. Um, and that that was a really successful endeavor, and it was a game changer for us, but it was also uh, pretty pricey to do it that way. And so working with our agency, um, we decided to try to put out ideas to um, media ho- different media houses uh, and see what they could come up with in response. So uh, we had this idea that we wanted to shoot a bunch of amazing Seattle bands in fabulous Seattle locations and, you know, give people this entertainment value of this Seattle band that's really exciting and wrap wrap our city around it. So, you know, you're delivered Seattle, but you're getting the entertainment. And when we were shopping this around, um, Revolt TV came back and said, well, we could do a bunch of, you know, standalone videos of, you know, musicians playing around Seattle. Or uh, in that case, they were like, maybe we should just do a whole show, a whole TV show um, around music in Seattle. And it ended up being a uh, five season 
eight episodes per season endeavor. So we ended up with 40 episodes in the can and then a whole bunch of extra content on each of the band's performances. I think we had two bands in every episode and uh, each of one of each of those performances got an extra cut down. So we got tons of material that we could share in so many different ways. We had the long form 20 minute full episode. And then we also had three minute snackable content pieces that we could share uh, you know, on social and they were really uh, easy to kind of get around. Um, so it's, it's the different content part. It's the different media partners that we end up working with. And we're, we're always working to try to find who is the best fit for our brand as far as being the media partner. But it's, it's about working with these media partners to discover what they bring to the table um, as far as their audience, as far as what they see as interesting in Seattle, and kind of letting that help drive our story. I mean, we, we focus on, on getting out. We have this beautiful city surrounded by really epic natural features, mountains and water and whales and uh, otters. And so then we have this metropolis city kind of in the middle of it, nestled in all this nature. And then we have tons of arts and culture mm. and we have amazing food scene. And uh, so there's lots of pieces that are really easy to translate to the rest of the world and that are really uh, inviting to people. And I think that um, for a destination like yours, where there is a certain perception of what the city is, you know, showing those other dimensions is is a very good way of kind of expanding people's understanding and, and the appeal. And also, you know, once they're there, actually for them to do more stuff and spend more time, spend more money. So it certainly seems like a very, very well kind of sure. thought out process from the insight through the execution. Uh, and, and one of the things which really um, uh, surprised and delighted us when we were actually looking at Visit Seattle TV was that a lot of your content is... It, like you've got the content's half an hour long and, and, and there's so much general kind of discussion in the zeitgeist and the marketing zeitgeist that, oh, you know, your video should be 45 seconds or less or there should be, you know, GIFs or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, you know, Laura and I have discussed this a lot uh, on the show as well as, as, part, as separately uh, and uh, I think we both agree that there's definitely still an appetite for longer form content. But uh, what have you learned about the appetite of your audiences to consume longer form video? Because getting, getting people to read a long article is one thing. Getting somebody to commit to like a 40 minute episode of something is something very, very different. So what have you learned about your audiences uh, and what they want in that, in that context? It's, it's really fascinating. Um, the fact that we are letting other people tell the stories and we, and we tell the stories and we focus on entertainment. If it's not entertaining and if it's not engaging, it's not going to get eyes on it no matter how long it is. And if it's, and if it's not entertaining, even if you have a 45-second video, it's, it's still going to be you know, glossed over and not remembered. So we really focus on delivering something that's really engaging, not because it's Seattle, but because it's entertaining. And that's really been our key. We have a video that we recently made um, in this project that we're doing called Dear Seattle. And a young filmmaker and uh, a videographer named John John Agostado, uh, he made this piece for us uh, called Just a Kid from Seattle. And it takes place, you know, probably the part of Seattle where most people aren't going as tourists. But we asked filmmakers to give us honest, authentic stories that had Seattle as a backdrop. And when you allow people to tell authentic, honest stories and really let their own love shine through that, 
uh, it becomes really compelling content. And we've seen our our watch times are really really kind of bananas um, overall. We we mostly have very short form content, but we have really great watch times for our, even our longer content. So can I ask you a little bit about that that concept of entertainment because. A lot of the time we think of, of uh, having to produce content that is useful and certainly from a marketing point of view, it's one of the best ways for us to deliver value to the audience. How do you sort of, um, do you have a mix of, you know, entertaining and utility content? Like, is there a blend of that or are you, at least from a Visit Seattle TV point of view, are you predominantly focused on more of an immersive kind of like, you know, um, uh, entertainment, like like a, a branded entertainment experience? Um, it's the way I think about it, and and this puts a really, in some ways, a negative spin on it. But I think about it as a teaspoon of sugar with medicine kind of a thing, yeah. where uh, we are delivering something that people want, and we're making sure that it's surrounded by really good nutritional stuff. So, um, <laughs> regardless of how sweet it tastes, they're still getting the message that we have, you know, world class arts, culture, food, wine, booze, mm. you know, and whatever, whatever it is that all has to be hitting the mark even as we're entertaining them. So we trust that our city is as dynamic and compelling as it is. And we trust that that's going to shine through by just allowing it to do so. Yeah. Okay. We, we really work hard not to push and ramrod things. Um, and, and it's hard because, you know, we, we work with say Sundance to produce a content series and really it's, you know, when you're working with a partner like that, they're really all about letting the artists go and do whatever they want. And we have to kind of set up guardrails at the very outset of these projects to kind of let them know, you know, uh, these are the no's that we can't have in anything that you shoot. And uh, this, this is the thing that we'd love to see. We don't force it. But it sounds like you're very much avoiding that, you know, trap that some demos fall into, which is sort of almost a checklist of... Um, things that must be in a video you know kind of those what I would call go here do this videos which are just you know and then you know go down here you'll find this great restaurant then over the side of town there's this you know like a kind of um you know just a you know kind of almost a a video version of a listicle Mm. where it's kind of you know your top 10 whatever's you know it is much higher up the funnel than that it is it is about building um you know stories that have characters in them and i think that's a little bit of what i've seen is that there are there are characters um and and real people authentic people in 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 the stories that you tell for sure it's it's really important to us and and, and really for our brand for us to maintain our brand we have to maintain an authentic voice so when on our website, when we have our videos on visitseattle.tv, they are wrapped by all these other things, maps and other really logistical things to kind of get people what practically they need, while really what they want is the experience they kind of got from that video. And um, now, sort of thinking a little bit more uh, about the the um, the sort of the practical side of of distribution and you know getting this content to the right audience at the right time and the right channel. Your um your visit Seattle marketing boss Ali Daniels 
has talked about the fact that you're not really geo-targeting with your media and your and your placements, your affinity targeting. And it sounds to me that's obviously less about sort of saying, oh, we're targeting travelers out of Sydney, for example, or out of Auckland or out of Tokyo or out of New York. You're actually targeting um, people who, you know, behave a certain way, do certain things and, and kind of have a certain um, attitude, if you like. So, so um, what do you guys mean when you think about, when you talk about um, how you think about that targeting from an affinity point of view? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, we we let the geography for where we target uh, uh, reveal itself through the interest targeting that we do. So we have this target that we developed years ago. We have this idea of this advent culturist. And this is a person who likes to be outside. They like to not be necessarily on tours or be told what mm. to do. They want to explore on their own. They love arts and culture. They um, are explorers, but also urban-minded. So we take this kind of archetype of the Advent culturist, and we target those interests that you know through uh, data segmentation. And then geo-targeting kind of comes through from who's appearing through that. Uh, you know, affinity target, mm, okay. targeting. Yeah, yeah. So um, we've discovered that Houston uh, in Texas, which is not what I would think would be a, a top of mind uh, kind of a target market for Seattle, which is a very progressive liberal city. Um, but we've seen a lot of love from there. We did not expect it. So we learned that they love us just through the kinds of things that they're interested in. And then now we're targeting them geo-targeting because they've already revealed themselves to us mm, okay what about um the role of earned media i mean you've, you've talked about these media partnerships and they presumably paid partnerships with the likes of um vox media national geographic and so on um but what about um earned media off the back of what you're doing through visit seattle tv have you had um pick up um from media outlets um of of the work that you've created you know we have um, I think we're constantly learning how to do that better. So for 2019, what we're doing is we're looping our PR team in on all of our planning for 2019 so that they are thinking about all the hooks and angles that the stories and ideas that we're working on telling are have media hooks that they can kind of drive from their PR perspective. Um, it's not been something that we've done, um, I think, particularly uh well so far but i think we're getting we've been getting better and better at it and we've been getting more and more uh focused on making those connections and then uh obviously with that sort of f- further integration with other channels which you know helps you to i guess reach a broader audience but also but also have a, a greater impact across the different audience types that may be harder to reach in you know in one um, uh, medium or another it kind of sort of necessarily uh, brings up the question about about a return on investment, about um, understanding, you know, what the kind of commercial impact is. And I think, you know, for those of us who have worked at destination marketing organizations, we, we, we've got some sort of very obvious metrics around visitor nights and um, growing the growing the yield of visitors and, uh, you know, new visitors as well to the destination. But what are some of the... Um, the the most important uh, metrics when it comes to revealing that return on investment for uh, Visit Seattle TV that you guys are looking at there in Seattle? There's pretty much three things that we look at to kind of measure our success. And, and this is really high level, but um, 
you know, the first thing is the simplest action is our, our videos getting watched in the first place. That, that's the first metric. And then the second thing is, um, are they coming to our site after watching our video, mm. uh, you know, wherever it is that they've seen it? And we're tracking that really intensely. And then the third thing is, you know, looking at our Revtar year over year and five year averages, um, we're a really super seasonal destination. Uh, we have a pretty large shoulder season. And so it's really about, are we able to fill and manage the, that shoulder season? And the um, the one question in regards to, to, to um, uh, that impact on the local economy that, that we were particularly interested in was, we noticed that in Seattle, you've got this kind of unique funding model with your campaigns funded by the Seattle Tourism Improvement Area, which uh, for those listeners that are playing at home, is a dedicated marketing fund, uh, which takes in almost 60 Seattle hotels where you charge guests an extra two dollars a night, and that kind of comes back into the marketing of the of that area in particular. How has that made a difference to what you do? Whether it's sort of you know obviously enabled you to you know have more funds, but also um, committed you to showcasing certain stakeholders or parts of the industry that you know without that funding maybe you wouldn't have to do. Like, what are the kind of the the the, the top pros and cons of that of that approach? Well, for us, it's everything. The TIA that we have essential. Um, prior to the Seattle Tourism Improvement Area being installed, I think it was 2012, we didn't have funds where we could uh, market to tourists and visitors. We only had funds that could help allow us to market to uh, convention travelers and, biz- and right. business. So, and then in 2012, also to make things worse, um, Washington State's Tourism Office got defunded and shut down um, (laughs) because of whatever kinds of, uh, you know, monetary issues were going on in our state government. So Visit Seattle found itself in a place like the Washington State Tourism Office had a very meager budget. When it was closed, I think it was just over one and a half million dollars annual budget for the whole state, which is tiny. Um, And then, so we decided we needed to do something to, number one, give us some money so we could actually market our city. And um, we focused on really moving our target from the uh, convention traveler to the tourist, because in our minds, every convention traveler is a tourist. Yeah, 100%. 100%. uh, Exactly. So um, our TIA is, is absolutely essential, and it's allowed us to do pretty much everything you've seen that's visitor facing um and we would be sunk without it it's absolutely essential wow. and uh you know it's all the hotels around you know as long as we're able to keep on proving that we are putting those heads in their beds um you know they're pretty happy with it so far and and we're pretty proud of the work that we've done so um so far knock on wood everything's going great okay yeah cool presumably though that still doesn't mean that you have um a uh, bottomless um, bucket of money and, and I think one of the oh, biggest no. yeah I can imagine that one of the biggest question that a lot of people listening will have is around um, you know budget and you know they will assume that you've, you've got a fairly sizable budget to be doing what you're doing with Visit Seattle TV um, and that's a challenge I mean I hear it day in day out um, at Storiation at my content agency from other DMOs wanting to do video but thinking how do we do this in a scalable and affordable way um you know what kind of budget 
you know, without necessarily telling me the numbers, I mean, how have you made the budget work for you? Um, you know, the real key, I think, to our, our budget success has been working with media partners to create our content. So, you know, when we did first takes, it was our first foray into video and we did all the production ourselves. We hired a production company. We did, you know, everything. And then we had to find distribution channels to kind of get it out there. It may, we learned that it made more sense to work with media houses like Vox Media or, uh, you know, Revolt TV or Sundance, who is in, they're in the business of creating content. And what we would do is do an ad buy, and the content is part of that ad buy. So we don't pay for content production. It's a piece of our ad buy. So if you had uh, one piece of advice, we always ask our guests at this point generally to to, start, to to give us one piece of advice that they would give to another destination marketer who's in a similar position as you, you know, sort of thinking about expanding their their content um, into video quite substantially and sort of telling their destination stories through this medium uh, much more heavily, what would be your kind of um, one piece of really critical golden advice that you would share? <laughs> One piece, oh no. <laughs> um, I, I think I would say, uh, you know the strength of your product. Guide others to show that to their friends and others. Mm. I, don't, I don't believe in the top-down uh, marketing message for destination. I, I re- really do believe in, in the power of visitors to get other visitors to come. It's been proven out over and over again in our work, and... and um, if you have a beautiful product, uh, then you should just get out of the way and let it do its work with the people who come and enjoy it. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us and um, and for your time yeah. today. Yeah, so happy to be here. Really happy to be here. Thanks a lot for the time. So that was a great chat with David Newman from Visit Seattle. I mean, I think what I what I was so interested to hear about was um, how they've made such a big, you know, bet on video. And I think this is something yes. that, you know, a lot of DMOs, um, a lot of destination marketers are talking about a lot. Um, you know, they know they need to be doing video, but they they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to do it in an affordable way because it mm. is expensive. Um, what I love about the content and listeners should go and, and have a look at Visit Seattle TV is just it is really authentic. It's it's kind of it's content that um, is risky in some ways for a demo. You know, you, you're, you're talking about the music scene, you know, kind of demos traditionally haven't had that much of a cool factor. Um, but yet here we here they are doing this great sort of series about the kind of underground music scene. Um, it's, 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 it's brave. Yeah, and... agreed. And I think it would be, well, I mean, I think it would be unusual for Seattle not to do music. I mean, it's, it's mm. such an integral part of its identity. You know, there's that, what else is there? Starbucks and the Space Needle and Twilight movies anyway. So like, there's a lot of kind of key things you associate, but then I think what this does really well is it goes into those extra places. And like he said, he, he cited that example of a filmmaker who made a, a piece of content about a less visited place there's a degree of discovery around that and i think what personally really strikes me about this approach is that it's not a campaign i think a lot of the time dmos are like oh we know our audiences are after video and they want you know long form short form and all the forms and vertical video and so we're giving it to them with this one campaign that lasts two months 
these guys have gone, this is a bedrock of our storytelling. This is a foundation of how we're going to communicate about Seattle with the audience. It's not going to be a one-off thing. It's something that's going to be part of what we do forever. And that to me is the major difference here. And, and, and the really kind of, um, you know, like you said, the really sort of brave aspect of this work is the fact that it's not something that's going to be switched off in two months time. It's something that is a consistent always on pace uh, as demonstrated i think by the fact that they have a, a guy as a creative director internally who is you know a big part of his role to drive this continuously mm, that's that's right and i, th- I think um, i also was so interested in that example of the um you know the, the filmmaker whose story was set in a um you know an area that is not really somewhere that tourists are traditionally gone and yes. i think that and i think it's interesting listening to myself to say that i don't think that necessarily means you're trying to the nature of this kind of content is not that you were saying go to this area actually it's <laughs> it's it's seattle as a backdrop and it's yes. it's an authentic story that happens to be set um in a suburb maybe where there is no product there's no experience for tourists yeah. to have yeah. but they've gone that's okay we are using Seattle as a backdrop and mm. it's kind of like almost Seattle is a sort of a Seattle is a character here you know and yeah. it's, it's kind of got all these different manifestations and so it's not that pastiche of images set to mm. music yes. um, or it's this sort of trying to have utility of you know, and then it's just dull as the short and and yeah, 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 and it's yeah. sort of like then there's someone having a coffee in this great, you know, cafe, and then they go and do this. So it's not trying to be a visual itinerary. It's not trying to be a pastiche of inspiring yes. images set to music. It is actually genuine character-driven storytelling. Yes, I think. Look, personally, um, and I think we might have different opinions about this, but personally, I'm not a big fan of personality-driven destination marketing. I, I don't. I think that. Uh, there's a risk sometimes that you see somebody like, oh, well, they're not like me. I, that's not my kind of place. Um, and generally that's a problem because like I said, it's done in a campaign context and there's like eight people. And it's like, well, holy hell, how do you choose eight people to represent a destination any larger than say like a small town, right? In this case though, I think this this works because it's on such a large scale. Generally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be kind of throwing my hat in the ring or sort of advocating rather for personality driven destination marketing. I think this is a, good example of how it works well though mm. yeah we probably do disagree because yeah. i think that um i think that human beings want to see stories about other human beings yeah. and that's how you make an emotional connection about place yes. you know people in place are inextricable and i think that great demos understand that and they understand they have to surface people stories because that's who you connect with and that's mm. how you make an emotional connection i don't connect to a landscape to you know some mountains i could like, connect to the idea of a place and the idea of that place is is driven by the people but i take your point that in the context of a campaign where you've got a limited number of people you can feature that's that's potentially limiting and a bad yeah. idea and i do agree that when i see content that is that person's not like me you know then that's a problem but so i think it's it's about scale to your point you know yeah. if you can do it in a bigger scale yeah, and then great. it's about how you use that content to target specific audiences you know so when you're working with vice you're serving up people that are from the underground music scene that are vice ish that yeah. they have, vice's audience have an affinity with that um you know when you're serving up you know content to home beautiful magazine which they're not but you know if they were <laughs> they're going to find someone completely different that that you know that is actually that that kind of gels with that audience yes yes and the last thing i really want to say that i really enjoyed about this conversation was david's insight around 
how the geography of the audience is revealing itself, which is another very unusual approach with destination marketing. Because yes, we have affinity targeting. Yes, we have attitudinal behavioral targeting and you know need state targeting. Um, but there's still a degree of layering. It's like, yes, we want those kind of people, but they must be in these six target markets. These guys seem to be a little bit more um, exploratory and, and opportunistic about the way they do it. They're like, well, let's toss it out. Let's see where these people are. And I think um, they're experiencing a, a an uptick uh, of visitation from Australia, which for them is a little bit unexpected, but they can kind of see that, um, as he put it, that, that um, adventurist kind of person who is, um, you know, has a particular uh, set of behaviors and a particular set of set of attitudes, they are in different places. And then they're sort of letting that audience, um, letting their content gravitate towards the audience rather than trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, which I think is a particularly, you know, really kind of great insight led approach for, for targeting and for content development for DMOs. Yeah, and that's a nifty term, although it's very hard to say. Isn't very hard, it? yes. Advent culturist. Portmanteau is generally very, yeah. very awkward to say. That's a tongue twister. Alrighty, it's trend monitor time. This week we're going to look at. Uh, uh, millennials travel habits and there's some uh, new research that Expedia has shared in their Expedia Media Group Solutions um, blog uh, in particular around the length of time millennials are traveling and the average number of trips they take per year and it's a bit surprising because um, they're saying that the last duration the average duration of the last holiday that millennials took was 6.2 days and the total number of trips taken per year by millennials on average is 5.6. So if you do the the math, then that's uh, about 32 days per year. Uh, and this is a lot of time considering that in countries like the US, they only get two weeks of holidays per year. Uh, in places like Australia, there are, there is one, one month, 20 days of, of annual leave per year. Um, so it's more than that. But it's also surprising because the perception is that people are, millennials, sorry, are taking like, three-month stretches at a time to travel through Asia, travel through Africa, find themselves on a sabbatical of some sort, but actually it's not. And so maybe some of our assumptions are incorrect about the ways this generation travels. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. There's some things here that that do um, make a lot of sense and they and they line up with what we've heard before, which is just that, you know, really that, you know, millennials put a high priority on travel. They really, they value um, experiences over things. And, um, you know, the headline of this article, the, the writer starts talking about how she would rather spend money on travel than a car. And I do think that's true. Um, but to your point, you know, it's not necessarily what we might have imagined um, in terms of their their actual behaviour and, and the number of and duration of trips that they're taking. Um, I wonder if, you know, I mean, look, I think that, you know, if you look at the economy post-GFC, I don't think that actually the situation for millennials in terms of um, job security and getting jobs is actually that great, has has not been that great for a number yes, of years. Well. And I think that maybe that whole idea that you can just, you know, chuck it all in and go traveling, um, maybe that's a luxury that some millennials don't have. If they've managed to get a foothold in the um, in the paid economy, then they are, um, you know, looking at how they can um, balance, um, you know, travel with career. I think it's a great example of how these kind of um, different macroeconomic societal forces can kind of collide, if you like, in the sense that um, that 
period of the of the recession of the GFC, of the credit crisis, two thousand eight to two thousand ten, um, caused I guess a fundamental shift in that generation's expectations about what financial security means, and therefore it, it might seem like well you know I might buy a house, I might not, um, I might settle down and have a family when I'm thirty, or maybe I'll do it when I'm 35 or 36 or whatever and actually yeah that's manifesting into travel a lot because i think that a lot of those beliefs or aspirations or expectations about their life uh, may have changed a lot uh, and so therefore this is a great way to sort of um, you know push against that another interesting statistic that um that they've uh, uncovered is that 81 uh, percent of Millennials consider budget a key factor when it comes to travel. And, and I've seen a lot of research um, from Expedia about different traveler types and traveler groups um, about how much they consider budget to be like a deciding factor on where they go. And I don't think I've ever seen it as high as 81%. I think that it's probably it's probably pretty high at 81%. So it means obviously that that that, that to me means two things, really. Um, one is that they'll, they'll probably, they'll be happy to spend the money on travel, but they want to make sure they're getting good value uh, in their experiences. Um, but also it does go to explaining that sort of um, 5.6 average trips per year uh, because many of them could be low cost for a few days only. That's right, yeah. I think I think that, you know, budget conscious, a lot, a lot of people would assume that that's an age thing, you know, that you're millennial, therefore, you know, you have less spending power. But I actually think that, um, you know, we should consider to, to the extent to which this is actually, you know, part of the identity of this of this group, that they actually are quite um, budget yes. conscious in all parts of their lives, and that extends to travel. Um, I think that, you know, another thing that came through the Expedia um, research that, that they'd sort of unearthed, which I think we all know, is that they're not brand loyal. And so mm. budget conscious, but not brand loyal. So that's, that's you know, really something to consider um, in the way that we market um, to millennials, um, you know, we really have to demonstrate that value beyond price. And what's the difference between price and value? And we've talked about this before yeah, in our work together absolutely. at Tourism Australia. How do we demonstrate value um, for experiences? What is the value of an experience? Not just that it's what it costs, but how do you, you know, what, what does value mean? Mm. And I think value is an interesting concept in travel for destination marketers in particular because they don't they're often hamstrung by the products and experiences at their disposal they don't control the necessarily the range of products that are available and so it can be difficult to communicate that sense of value without having that direct um sort of control over the product itself but i think it's an important challenge and for this generation uh, given the amount of time they're actually traveling apparently 30 days a year um, it makes sense that if you're dividing a relatively modest travel budget amongst 30 days that value is the primary concern we talked about this i think with tourism australia we might say you know you might go to the fish market and spend you know you might spend a hundred dollars on you know um, a lot of seafood at the fish market in sydney um but what is the value of that is this is this the freshest um you know seafood you're yeah, going to taste is yeah. this going to be you know that they're going to be types of seafood that you've never experienced and therefore this is a unique and unusual experience like what is the value of that hundred dollars that you might spend um at the sydney fish market with that spiky that spiky sea creature. Yes. Which I don't even know. It always I, freaks me out. Yeah, how do you even eat that? I don't know. I don't know. I think you need to be a shark to eat that probably. <laughs> okay. 
So this week on Campaign News, we want to talk about um, two uh, campaign extensions from Tourism Australia and Tourism New Zealand. Uh, Tourism Australia has followed up its its mega Dundee um, TVC um, with an, an extension, uh, which is a new ad where you get to sort of tour the set effectively, you know, being Australia, um, led by the lesser known um, Hemsworth brother. <laughs> Give Luke a break. He's, he's still a legitimate member of that family and an actor in his own right. So I'd like to just defend him there. Yeah, poor old Luke. Um, and then uh, Tourism New Zealand has also, um, you know, quite quickly followed up its um, Get NZ on the Map um, sort of viral um, campaign that it did with Rhys Darby, who was star of Flight of the Concords, um, and also the Prime Minister of New Zealand, um, with another uh, sort of viral-ish video. Well, they're certainly hoping that it will be, I imagine. Um, and we want to sort of chat about those today and and what did you think let's start with let's start with Dundee so much to say so I think Dundee is uh, really interesting because um, I think as we identified back in episode six it's a campaign in response to a really big problem as a a decline visitation from the US it was the Super Bowl extravaganza and it was very much a a strategic play Um, and this is obviously very much a strategic kind of part of that overall campaign because it's just about going into the, the really hectic booking season now for the US um, at this time of year. And so I think that it's very well placed. Uh, it's very well timed. Um, creatively, the concept is, I guess, still interesting. Whether, you know, there's a third one that can that can kind of play off of it, I don't know. Um, I think it is a bit weird that uh, it's still kind of, you know, being talked about as the as as the movie set as like you know kind of trying to carry on that that joke when the joke has been revealed that the punchline has been delivered um so creatively you know we can we can certainly <laughs> talk about that like the major challenge if you like with this uh is about sort of recreating the enormous sense of virality and freshness and engagement without chris hemsworth and six months on that's mm. mine those are my thoughts on that. What I think, about? I think about I you? think it's. I mean, it's um, it's always difficult, as you say. It's, it's almost impossible to, you know, kind of for lightning to strike twice. Yeah. And the brief for this, Certainly you know, in a short period of time. Yeah, and and the brief for this to me seems to be um, sensible, but also the kind of thing that sort of kills creativity a little bit, which is they've said, you know, we did we did the big um, ad, we got a lot of attention, and now we need to drill down into each of the locations. So what we literally see in this ad is, you know, Cottesloe Beach, you know, like we, we literally do a tour of Australia yes. of these kind of key iconic places, Great Ocean Road, so on and so forth, um, which is smart and sensible and strategic because, you know, really before we were, you know, um, kind of, you know, that, that breakthrough ad was really about getting attention, and this is now how do I experience Australia? And this is about much more about kind of getting down to the kind of granular level of locations and yeah. places um, to help me, you know, begin to think about researching and planning my trip doesn't, for me, make a very good piece of entertainment. I think it's sort of mm. moderately funny in parts. And yeah. and I and I and the bit I do like is, um, I'm just going to call him the other Hemsworth yeah. um, brother, um, because that's kind of self-deprecating and funny that, that he's there and, he, and Chris isn't there. You know, yes. he's got a cardboard cutout of Chris and he's sort of driving around with him on the movie set and the... You know, crew on the movie set are ignoring him and won't talk to him. That's that's actually 
the humor that's the humor for me um but in general you know i just think it's really difficult to achieve something great creatively when you've got that all those bit box ticking going on you know must feature you know it would have been every state must have at least two places or whatever it is it would have been divided very evenly as these things are um that that's a bit of a killer for me i i I agree. Um, I think obviously these guys have been they've been integrating very closely with Expedia uh, as well in terms of trying to convert that that um, that interest and that uh, excitement, if you like, about Australia into bookings. Uh, they've been doing some very specific work. And, and again, in episode six, Harry Nair mentioned that. Harry from Expedia mentioned that, and that seems to be continuing. And then across the over across the ditch, the Get NZ on the Map campaign um, kind of. Uh, brings in a few other well-known New Zealand faces, namely Sir Peter Jackson, uh, and uh, and and then Ed Sheeran as well, which is which is kind of random um, and funny. Um, well, Ed Sheeran, you have to understand that he he loves New Zealand. Yeah, you know, he's kind of like he he you know there's a backstory. There he's about- like a massive um, Hobbit. Sort of Tolkien fan and everything yes, as well. Yes, all of that. So, yeah. and of course, I mean, it's smart in a sense because he's, you know, he's he resonates, you know, in a key market for them clearly or internationally. Probably all of them, yeah. to be honest. So that's that's sort of smart. He's more of a token. He's sort of a, a bit of a token appearance. He's, um, you know, he, he's there um, as part of it, isn't he? But you know, really, the main players are again Reese Darby, who's who's still yeah, funny, still funny, still funny. Jacinda Hearn is a sort of a you know a, a, a cameo, I guess, um, and Sir Peter Jackson, um, you know, playing a role there as well. I mean, I think for me, you know, the interesting thing about this one is, again, it's hard to get lightning to strike twice and you're mm. trying to kind of, you know, when you're trying to repeat a viral campaign, that's tricky. Um, I also think it's interesting that they've gone completely the opposite way to Australia and that they haven't tried to showcase any thing about new zealand it, yeah. you know there's no there's 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 no actual destination messaging in that at all and you would have thought that maybe was where they took this in the second iteration yes. that they would have gone we've got our viral piece of entertainment and now we're going to you know actually showcase the destination and start to show how you can experience new zealand and they haven't done that and i'm, I'm interested i'm not sure why. why yeah and i think the, the same point we made the same point um when we were talking about the initial executions of these kind of creative concepts that uh, the New Zealand execution was not necessarily aligned to the brand platform. Like we, we felt that it was a very kind of, um, you know, reactive opportunity they went after. Uh, but in reality, the alignment to the brand and to all the key messages and everything is definitely not as structured as the Australian one. And I think it's interesting to compare these two because they're both powerhouses in inverted commas of destination marketing globally. They're both... Um, uh, organizations that have done great, interesting, compelling work in the past and continue to do so. And they've both kind of, you know, tackling a similar problem of relevance and, and you know, conversion from aspiration to actual visitation in like the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think it, it, all within a very short space of time. And that's why I think it's a really fascinating study. If I was like doing some kind of thesis on, on destination marketing, I would be doing it on these two pieces of work uh, because it's just such a different approach for effectively very very similar problems that's right and i think that you know i think it's a it's a cue to us that in future episodes we will look to get um you know marketers um from both those um dmos on the program um you know when we're a little bit way down the track and we've got some results to talk about as well because that's really our thing is we you know we really want to talk about um you know campaigns when we've got something you know kind of tangible to discuss you know because you know, otherwise it is ultimately a bit of a, um, you know, it's a, it's an instinctive response as yes. to whether or not I like it or not. Uh, 
That's all we have time for today on this episode of The Destinationists. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. If you want to find out more, hit up the website at thedestinationists.com, follow us on Twitter, or connect with us on LinkedIn. Oh, and remember, if you like the podcast, give us a rating or review and tell your mates about it too. I'm Andres Lopez-Varela. And I'm Lauren Quaintance. Join us next time for more insights from top travel marketers from around the globe. Oh,